the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight we are talking monkeypox with Dr. Tommy Mitchell. And a picture is worth a thousand words, right? But what if that picture is wrong? Matt Johnson is a mental health advocate who explains the public scrutiny that first responders go through. And July 28th is World Hepatitis Day. Dr. Sophia Bartlett gives us the 411 on that. And what books are you reading right now? Find out why that is important and how it may make you to live longer. And are you plagued by constipation? Let's get moving, people. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. As I mentioned earlier uh, at the start of the program, but looks like monkeypox is upon us. And the World Health Organization has determined that it is a big issue. And joining me on the program to talk a little bit more about that is Dr. Tomi Mitchell. She is well-versed in uh, monkeypox, and uh, she joins me on the line from Alberta. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Hi there. Thanks for having me on the show tonight. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, you are an MD. You, uh, all, you're all about wellness and performance, and you empower lawyers, doctors to live their best lives. And something that you have noticed, and maybe before the World Health Organization, finally acknowledged monkeypox as a pandemic. Uh, finally, it has met the criteria for being a pandemic, and you wrote a very interesting article. Tell me a little yeah. bit your incredible work that you do. Tell me a little bit about uh, the, your inspiration for writing this article that I actually saw on LinkedIn. Yes, well, number one, writing is my way of sharing my truth and what I see in the world without any political affiliation, any organizational affiliation. That's me being authentic. And quite frankly, the monkeypox situation has been going on for it's been around for years, but it has spread to multiple countries where it was never seen before over two months ago, right? So we are talking oh. about, a, by definition of a pandemic, this pandemic started more than just this weekend. It started a while ago. And oh, you know, yeah. it is, and we're seeing cases of it. I, I've actually seen cases of it. I, I know people or patients who have been diagnosed with, uh, monkeypox, and initially it was thought to be COVID nineteen, in part because they started out with a fever, that was their yeah. initial symptom. But we're not really seeing fever, at least I'm not seeing too much fever in patients who have the BA five subvariant of Omicron. Um, I don't know about yourself, but it quickly turned into the rash and muscle aches, and uh, and then it was diagnosed as monkeypox. Yes, exactly. This this disease is evolving, and it's not sugar um, cookie cutter. Like beginning of the COVID nineteen pandemic, they said, "Oh, you don't have a sore throat. You do have a sore throat. You don't have a runny nose." Like whatever. Like it was so like really. But what we've learned over the past two years, you can have many symptoms, or you can have like next to zero symptoms with COVID, right? Um, mm-hmm. So it really it really varies. But really, I like back to your original question. Why I wrote it was because. I felt like we were doing this again. And I frequently comment 
my published articles on um, subjects that are really alarming. When I first heard our leaders in Canada say, the monkeypox has a low risk to Canada, we are not concerned, as I wrote in my article, my heart, I groaned. And then I also laughed because I was like, ah, we're here again. Um, because that's the same thing we <laughs> said about COVID, right? It exactly. was all low risk, we'll be over in two weeks. It's not even going to come to Canada, it's in China. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Um, we, we know how viruses spread in the science community. We don't need a PhD of epidemiology or virology to tell us that. And we fly as people. So the virus, you know, gets onto us humans, and then we travel. So we can be around the world in less than 24 hours. So how is That's this right. low risk? So let's, let people, society, why don't we learn from the past? And it's not even that far away. Okay, the last major global pandemic was smallpox 100 years ago and people are like oh that's so far away oh my goodness how are we supposed to know that like whatever excuses okay no we are still in a COVID pandemic it has not gone we are ramping up with this second this not second another variant of concern uh-huh. um and now we're here and then to make matters worse the messaging is it's only in, in men that have sex with men as if mm-hmm. men that have sex with men are the only people that can contract monkeypox. There are studies of, I think it's the last study I read, was about 72 cases of children globally and about 23 right. were under the age of four. Okay? That's right. And that is reported cases. So we know that's an underestimate, just like with COVID. We know in many cases it's probably 10 times less or uh, more. Like, like we're missing so many so why is monkeypox any different why is it that we suddenly don't use common sense principles of science that we've known for for centuries when are we going to learn and that is why i wrote it because it's like let's do something different world and canada I, i could not agree with you more what exactly is monkeypox let's just step it back a little bit well, um, uh, monkeypox is—it's um, a virus from the pox family. Like we've all heard of chickenpox, and um, it's similar to that which causes smallpox, which we haven't, as a society, heard like seen. Like I haven't seen smallpox. Maybe I haven't seen it in my clinical practice, but it's not related to chickenpox. Okay, so it. It's like a virus. It looks like molestum, and we see that often in kids. And in in many parents could probably um, remember taking their kids when they went to clinics more often for like little treatments of liquid nitrogen to little um, little raised lesions, and that's where it often starts. Huh. They call molesca. They get raised white, pink. So pretty benign because we see these in the office. I've done thousands of liquid nitrogen treatments. We sent them off to dermatology to um, to get treated. So that alone, because it can appear so benign, it might not be a differential diagnosis. And also because the messaging is it's for a certain demographic, which can lead to further stigma, which our world doesn't need, it gets ignored. Absolutely. Um, Getting back to uh, that it's only in, or the, the messaging out there is that this only occurs in men who have sex with men. Typically, these viruses may start within a particular group, but but quickly spread, as you already mentioned. 100%. Are- 
100 there are cases yeah hiv yeah. is a great example hey, thank you exactly uh, look that was in the 80s when it like exploded in north america then it really mattered right but it has been in other uh -huh. countries right uh -huh. absolutely um I, we're going to go to break uh dr mitchell but i'd like you to stay on the line and when we come back talk a little bit more about how monkeypox is spread and what the treatments are, and also the shocking mortality rates. I'm Maureen McGrath, and you're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Dr. Tomi Mitchell is my guest. She is an MD in wellness and performance specialist. She empowers lawyers, doctors, and other professionals to reduce burnout and overwhelm so that they can increase productivity in the workplace. She's leverage-based leadership. She's a speaker, trainer, and a writer, and she wrote a very impactful uh, article on, or posted it on LinkedIn about monkeypox. Have we learned anything? Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Mitchell. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, is it is monkeypox easy to get, and and how do people contract monkeypox? Well, the messaging right now it's not easy to get, right? And that was the same messaging we had in with COVID, but it's very easy to contract COVID. You are definitely talking about close contact with an affected person, but even objects that they came in contact, such as bedding. And again, I do need to triple check resources, but we're hearing stories about the potential of monkeypox being aerosized, being in the air. Mm -hmm. So That's right. it's not, so here we go again, right? So it's like exactly. by breathing, you can contract it, right? So, so that's where we are. And the fact is, as a society, um, Sometimes the transparency when it comes to emerging illnesses that are evolving is limited. And the response, as in when they share this information with us, can be significantly delayed. And this is typical of what we've seen. Yes, it's concerned about patient privacy, which I totally respect and understand that. But we need data. We need, we need to know what is happening so parents, families, communities, schools can... Um, make informed choices like summer is going to be over in a few weeks unfortunately or a month or two kids are going to be going back to school we know that this potentially can spread in ventilation systems and we know that as a whole we didn't do a good job in changing ventilation systems with covid so now we have two pandemics right that have varying presentation right. right and the pox you don't Absolutely. have to have a skin lesion you don't have to have a skin lesion. It's only about 70% have the skin lesion. Uh-huh. So I, I, I know that monkeypox can be severe and, and even deadly in some people, and people can become sick for two to four weeks, which can impact their jobs, their relationships, their quality yeah. of life. Uh, I mean, it, it is really to be, it's, it's a tremendous concern for Canadians. What does Canada need to do to get the monkeypox outbreak under control? Okay, so we need to work on a national level and global. So nationally, we need to do what we know that's been the science books for hundreds of years. Early contact tracing, um, isolation, testing, vigorous testing, accessibility testing. Every doctor's office should be armed with a you know swab, whatever, and, and trained like this is what to look out for. There should be drive-through centers that are open to those who choose want to get vaccinated, right? But tracing is key. Um, you people make a don't great know. point. 
doctors need to be educated. You make a great point. Doctors need to be educated. But about they're not. This. But most are not. They're not. Exactly. Right. There really needs. We need to scale up that program in this country to educate doctors about what to look for. And the sad thing is, we already have a doctor shortage crisis, which our governments, as a whole, I don't know what they're doing. Right. We're, mm-hmm. What is the what is the Canada wide um, response to this and provincial wide? So we have a crisis on a crisis. We have a um, healthcare worker crisis. So we have less doctors, less nurses, people who are already exhausted, okay, from burnout. That's right. Right. Now it's like here's another pandemic. Most people are not enthusiastic about this. But yeah. the virus doesn't. 100%. Care. That's virus right. There care. was an article. No, it doesn't. And people are despondent almost about COVID-19 and the continuing pandemic. There was an article in New York Times and they said that, you know, New Yorkers attitude about COVID-19 was meh. (laughs) And that's pretty much the world's attitude about COVID-19 that we're having that. Dr. Mitchell, I really appreciate you coming on the program tonight, especially on such short notice. Um, uh, Your your article was on uh, LinkedIn. Where else um, can people, you know, find out about you or um, get more information for sure so your article was originally posted kevin md and you saw it on linkedin and maybe t- other people saw it on twitter they can reach me mm-hmm. by searching dr tony mitchell whether instagram dr tony with an m mitchell or um linkedin those are my two most popular sites so thank you, can DM thank you me. so much few weeks back, there was another, yet another tragic school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. There was a lot of public scrutiny of the response or lack of response of the police officers while many children and teachers lay sick, injured, and dying. It took the police officers what seems to be over an hour to respond. There was a photograph of one particular first responder who was seemed to be looking at his phone within minutes of entering the school as other police officers were milling about. This, to the public, seems absolutely horrific, and many people took to Twitter to express their outrage and upset over this photo. A picture is worth a thousand words, but sometimes those words might be wrong. Joining me on the line is... Matt Johnson. He is a firefighter and a mental health professional. Professional. Good evening, Matt. How are you? Great, Maureen. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. <laughs> um, so looking back to this, uh, I know you do a lot of work with first responders um, around their mental health because this is a massive issue um, for people attending tragic events like the Uvalde mass shooting or even the bank robbery we had in uh, Victoria, British Columbia, Saanich, British Columbia recently. And, um, you know, it's, it's horrific. I, I know myself, I've attended emergency situations and, you know, I've had nightmares afterward, talking in my sleep, um, you know, had to talk it out. Um, it, and it can be just terrific and really can impact the quality of life of a person. But Nothing is worse than when you are publicly scrutinized for something that you may or may not have done. And I referred to the photograph of the police officer who many people know because social media takes care of that. Somebody doesn't know, put it on Twitter and everybody knows. 
um, of a police officer who had the Punisher logo, number one, on his phone, and then also was seemingly not responding um, within minutes of entering the school. Uh, you know, to be honest, a lot of um, word has come out now that the officers waited an hour before tending to the people who had been shot. But this particular police officer, um, that picture may not be exactly accurate. What, what's, what is your knowledge on that? Yeah, I mean, it's quite fascinating because we're in an era where you just never know what the true details are of, a, of an event. But um, ironically, um, I, I was flipping through the channels and, and came across CNN and, and um, they were apologizing or, or seemingly apologetic um, regarding uh, new details that came to light regarding this officer that was on his phone during the school shooting. And um, the truth that, that's behind the matter, as far as I've been able to research, is that his uh, wife was uh, a teacher at the school, and she had actually been shot. And um, to my knowledge, he was checking his phone to see if she was um, uh, had texted or contacted him. So, you know, this is a very rare, tragic situation where not only is a first responder responding to an emergency event, but he's responding to an event that involves uh, a family member, which is something that I, I wish upon no first responder. Um, you know, uh, you're right, I do a lot of work with first responders. I am a full-time professional firefighter. And I think, um, you know, in my 10-plus uh, years in this profession, I've realized that um, when you compound the, um, the significance of the event from a personalized perspective, like this is an extreme example, just the compounded weight that, that's placed on your shoulders and, and the complex trauma that you experience afterwards, that in this case, um, you know, obviously became magnified through being vilified by the public. And um, this is something that obviously few people will, will ever be able to relate to in society. It looked bad by the picture that's described, but in reality, there's a very different story that uh, that's that's to be told here. Absolutely. I mean, my heart goes out to this gentleman. Uh, if that is the case, I, I, to be honest with you, I hadn't, I hadn't heard that. Um, but you know, I, I also wonder if, if that is true and I'm, I'm going to believe you, of course, <laughs> um, is somebody, um, do, do they even notice that they're being publicly vilified? I mean, if you're, um, wife lays dying is your are your thoughts and attention to that and do you know people actually care what other people think about that does that make the tragedy that much worse or is the focus with family and and on you know grief and trying to get through such a tragedy yeah I, it's a great question um Fortunately, I've never been in this situation. I can tell you that um, one of the most memorable um, calls I went to uh, was a call that reminded me of my mother, and, and this lady likely survived. Um, but when I went into her home, she had the same bedroom set as my mom. She lived alone. She was had a very clean home. And when I went to retrieve her uh, personal health number, I felt like I, it was, I was responding to my mom. Um, and so it's amazing how you can manufacture that connection at uh, a scene, but to have it actually be a family member is uh, a situation that I, I think is 
very rare in large urban centers. And, you know, we have to think about our first responders in smaller rural communities where, um, you know, responding to friends and family uh, might be something they do multiple times throughout their career. Absolutely. I I would imagine that it was something that could happen. You know, a policeman and a teacher, you know, often end up together or or work like that in in communities and, you know, nurses and and doctors, for example, and, you know, uh, family members can come into emergency departments. And I would imagine that it does um, happen, you know, quite often, Um, you know, more than we would think. I, I know that I've been in situations, I mean, not exactly like that, but where you've gone in you are, you know, in action, resuscitating somebody. And I remember once in my career, I know I was, it was in a labor and delivery unit and none of the nurses really had um, done resuscitation or knew how to use the equipment. And I had worked in the ICU. And, and so I just went, I was the manager, but I actually went into action and, you know, ran the code with the physician and I was actually even doing my own recording, taking notes, because a lot of the nurses, my memory is that a lot of, a lot of the nurses stood around stunned and, and couldn't actually move or do anything. Mm-hmm. And it was a pregnant yep. woman who had had a respiratory arrest and they delivered the baby, resuscitated her. And I dropped the piece of paper that I was taking notes on. And in my haste, I said, would somebody please pick up my paper of notes? And later on, the director of nursing said to me, um, she said, I thought it was very unprofessional that you dropped your notes during Mm. that code. And I thought, are you kidding me? (laughs) Like, I saved that woman's life. (laughs) And not only that, and, you know, like the nurses were, you know, very grateful. And, you know, I thought, that's what you have to say to me, You, you, you know, are you on crack? Like what is yeah. <laughs> like, and, and so it does, I can see where it would affect somebody, you know, here I was, you know, that first responder, if you will. And, um, and then, you know, criticized for something that was out of my control actually. And quite frankly, didn't make one bit of difference. Um, yeah. And you know, nursing, it, yeah. Nursing is, is just like, you know, frontline public safety in, in, a, in a different context. Um, the patients are coming to you rather than you going to the patients. And, um, you know, to your colleagues that froze in that moment, I know I've been on emergency scenes where, where that's happened too. And, you know, that's where the intensity and the, the confusion of the event is so significant that your mind and body kick in. And, and to normalize that, you know, it's to, to be human. Um, and it takes one person on that scene to to take a controlled perspective and engage um, like we're trained to do, like you described yourself, to to be involved. And um, sometimes, you know, what we find in public safety is the people that are, are taking those initiatives um, often experience the recourse that you did, which essentially becomes more of a moral injury, more of a you know, a trauma that happens from an organizational standpoint of maybe not following protocols or conduct uh, protocols, so to speak, right? It's a a very Mm -hmm. common and often overlooked area when it comes to understanding the nature of the trauma that, you know, nurses, healthcare workers, and first responders face on the front lines every day. That's exactly right. And I think in, you know, in a lot of even work that I do, um, you know, people can be critical of other people, you know, and that's the automatic response, it seems. Um, you know, my world 
moves fast, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. in, in some of the work that I do as well in healthcare, uh, some of the consulting work that I do. And, you know, you need information and you need it quickly and, and people panic and people, you know, they get upset and they, you know, it's, you know, it's, is it time that we are kinder, a kinder nation <laughs> to our healthcare providers? They're becoming fewer and fewer and also our first responders. You know, your article on LinkedIn that you wrote was, you know, really a friendly reminder to be kind to first responders. They're, they're performing work that many of the critics would never consider doing. Well, and what I find fascinating about that, Maureen, is that that post, um, you know, got about 14,000 hits in a week and 25 comments. And, and what I found really interesting is the level of skepticism that people within public safety and often people in positions of administrative and consultancy roles that were questioning my source, that were questioning the tactics of the police officer, which I really wasn't commenting on. Um, I was commenting on mm -hmm. society's reaction to quickly vilifying first responders. Not anything to do with protocols. I'm not a police officer. But what I found really interesting about it is people tying this to potentially, you know, the author having political ties to certain parties. And I was just like, we're in an era of sure misinformation, mm -hmm. but I was pretty confident in cross-referencing two or three sources before I put that post out. And even doing that, I found that people were quite skeptical of my post. Um, quoting me in terms of saying moving preemptively. Well, what does that mean preemptively, you know? So there's really nothing you can do on social media now that will placate everyone. That's what I've learned from this post is a friendly oh, reminder to be kind to first responders turned into people, you know, criticizing not only his actions and the author's story and also me posting it. <laughs> and it's like, when does this criticism kind of stop so that we can get down to the heart of the matter, which is how we treat our frontline emergency service workers in, in, our, in our culture and society, because that's really what the spirit of that post was intended to do. That's right. And probably the person who took that photograph did it with intention, with the intention of look at this, because the photograph, it doesn't look good when you look at it, to be honest with you. No. It's, it's a, you know, a police officer with his gun sort of hanging and he's looking at his, um, phone and he's got this Punisher logo on there and, it, and he looks lackadaisical. And so, you know, as, as people, we don't slow down to actually find out what, what's the real story. We want to vilify people, it seems. We want other people to fail or some people want other people to fail, mm -hmm. you know, maybe to look better themselves. I mean, I always think that's, that's one reason that we're happy when other people fail or make a mistake. But, you know, our mistakes are our greatest learning uh, lessons. Well, and but, um, yeah, absolutely, Maureen. And since we last spoke, I mean, I took my family on a road trip down to Eugene for the World Track Championships. And um, we stopped in Portland in the downtown core to go to a Nike store that I used to visit as a teenager. And the entire downtown core has been overrun by issues that we face in the downtown east side here in Vancouver. But to a much greater extent, like there's a 20 foot barrier to get into the Apple store. There's graffiti on like the 25th floor of a of a tower. And uh, I really sat there kind of wondering how would police ever want to how would someone ever want to go into policing to to deal with these complex issues mm -hmm. that really 
is doing the heavy lifting of society, right? And I really feel for 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 the the men and women um, that wear the dark blues with leasing because it's a very tough job. You rarely only hear about the the shortcomings of a police officer's actions. Uh, you, you, sorry, that's all you really hear about rather than the positive contributions they make to the community. And I'm on a fancy fire truck. Every kid wants to be near it. Um, people look at us as helpers. Um, I'd love to see that as being the case um, for our police as well. I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you so much, Matt, for joining the program tonight and for your friendly reminder to be kind to our first responders. It's never been so necessary. Really appreciate all of your great work and your contribution to the show. Thank you, Maureen. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Are you a bookworm? If you are, that seems to be good news, according to a new study in the journal Social Science and Medicine, because that study revealed that people who read books live longer than people who don't. The research was done at Yale University. There was around 3,600 participants over the age of 50, and they were asked survey questions about their reading habits. They split the cohorts into three groups. There were non-readers, readers who read less than three and a half hours per week, and people who read more than three and a half hours per, per week. And each group was followed for 12 years. And guess what? It is ladies' night here, and I just want to point out that the people who read the most were college-educated women in the higher-income group. Now, they may have a little bit more time on their hands. Maybe, maybe not. But over the course of the study, the researchers consistently found that both groups of readers lived longer than the non-readers. And those who read over three and a half hours a week lived a full, wait for it, 23 months longer than the people who didn't read at all. And it's important what you read. Book readers had a four-month survival advantage at the age when 20% of their peers passed away. So it was it was noted that uh, it's best to read books. And the reason it's best to read books like novels, for example, because reading involves two major cognitive processes, deep reading and emotional connection. And deep reading is that slow process where you engage with the book and you try to understand it within its own context and within the context of the outside world. And then you also have this emotional connection where you empathize with the character. So you're very much connected to the book and that promotes social perception and also emotional intelligence. And so those cognitive processes were what was cited by the Yale team and used as markers for the study. So a couple of book suggestions that I have for you that I've read this summer so far, and the summer's not over yet, City on Fire by Garth Risk Hallberg is one of them. I actually reread To Kill a Mockingbird because there's very few books that I reread um, uh, because I don't like to do that. I don't like to watch movies twice, but that one I probably have uh, read 10 or 15 times. Um, I also read The Last Thing He Told Me by Laura Dave. I read The Lincoln Highway by Amor Towles. And, and it's probably not just this summer. This is the, in the last, um, you know, three or four months. The End of Normal, that was by Stephanie Madoff, um, Bernie Madoff's daughter-in-law. And, um, yeah, so those are some suggestions that I have. And um, Where the Crawdads Sing is on my list next. But right now, um, we are joined on the line 
by Dr. Sophia Bartlett. She's an epidemiologist and public health researcher based in Vancouver, Canada. She is the senior scientist for sexually transmitted and bloodborne infections at the British Columbia Center for Disease Control. She leads a program of research that aims to improve health equity for people who have experienced incarceration and people who inject drugs, which are two groups who are disproportionately impacted by sexually transmitted and bloodborne infections, STBBIs. She is also a surfer, a swimmer, a biker, and uh, all, all around athlete, it looks like. Hello, Sophia. Hi, Maureen. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Pretty good. Yeah, I was out biking uh, uh, today. <laughs> yes, and I was on your website, and your picture is incredibly impressive of you paddleboarding. I'm a paddleboarder, but not quite like that. I don't get to do as much surfing since I moved to Canada. Um, I surfed a lot when I lived in Australia, but I get over to Vancouver Island whenever I can. Um, so are you surfing in that time. picture? Uh, yeah. Like paddle? Yeah. Oh, you yeah, surf. You, were, you were surf with, <laughs> paddle, do you surf with a paddle? Surfing. Yeah, paddle board uh, surfing. Oh, uh, paddle board surfing. Oh, my gosh. Mm. Okay. That's a new one for me. Anyway. <laughs> Um, I, I'm a paddleboarder and I was recently paddleboarding with some people who had never paddleboarded before <laughs> and they were calling me a monster <laughs> in a good way. Cause it's, it's, it's always could... fun the first time, I think, especially. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I was, I've been doing it for a few years, but I could do it. I could get up on nobody I was with could get up on the board. They couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't paddle, but I mean, it was on a lake. It was flat water. Let me tell you. <laughs> but anyway. Um, yes, I won't be, I will not be paddleboard surfing anytime soon. Um, but thank you for doing that. <laughs> and thank you, Dr. Bartlett, for joining the program. We're talking about uh, National Hepatitis, World Hepatitis Day coming up on July 28th. Why is it important to have World Hepatitis Day? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so, yeah, this is a day that's marked around the world to uh, raise awareness about viral hepatitis. So that's primarily hepatitis B and hepatitis C. Um, and that's because these are viruses which actually infect quite a lot of people around the world. Uh, and Canada is no different. We have um, quite a number of people estimated to be living with hepatitis C across Canada. Uh, we estimate there's about 58,000 people in British Columbia with hepatitis C infection or who have ever had a hepatitis C infection. Uh, and across Canada, the Public Health Agency um, releases estimates every year um, of how many new cases there are. And interestingly, because of COVID-19, the number of people getting tested for hepatitis C uh, decreased quite a lot. And so we saw fewer diagnoses. Um, and this is really concerning because we don't think that the number of new cases dropped off. It's just fewer people actually got diagnosed. And so this year, especially World Hepatitis Day is really important because we want to try and make sure that those people who might have acquired the infection over the past couple of years or who already had the infection and weren't aware of it, um, will think about going out and getting tested so that they know what their hepatitis status is. Because these are infections which actually have very few symptoms during the sort of chronic phase of the infection. Um, many people might notice um, sort of very vague things like feeling a bit tired, 
um, or having, you know, sort of a little bit of, um, you know, joint pain, things like that. But they're things you can easily dismiss or kind of just think, well, maybe I'm getting older or maybe I'm tired. Um, the only really sure way to know if you have a hepatitis um, infection, hepatitis B or hepatitis C, is to get tested. And and there are treatments for people. Is it to people? That's I mean, it's very yeah. It's yeah. very interesting that people have are delayed getting delayed diagnoses. Many people have decided not to go to hospitals. We saw that early on in the in the pandemic, or not to go to the doctor for fear of catching COVID nineteen. But a lot of other diseases went uh were, were missed and and hepatitis is one of them so but also i think people are afraid to get diagnosed because That's they're afraid absolutely true yeah they're afraid they're gonna die or that it's gonna be cancer or you know and they don't want to yeah. know but and i think there was a lot of um kind of misunderstanding so these viruses hepatitis um c especially it's actually it was only really identified fairly recently we, we only pinpointed that this was the virus that was causing what at that time we called non-A and non-B hepatitis um, in 1992 is when we actually got the screening tests um, to be able to, to test blood and know that that virus was present. And at that time, we didn't know a lot about hepatitis C. Um, and that was when, you know, the AIDS um, epidemic was um, still really quite serious. There wasn't effective um, treatments uh, for HIV back then. And so there was kind of a misunderstanding that hepatitis C was going to be something like HIV and that it was a death sentence. Um, and at that time as well, there wasn't really any treatments available for hepatitis C. Um, those treatments kind of evolved over time. Um, throughout most of the 90s and into the 2000s, there was treatment that was available, but it took up to 48 weeks to complete the treatment and involved injections. Um, and it was really quite um, kind of exhausting treatment to go through. It was uh, interferon-based treatment, which uh, we still use for other, um, some other kind of health um, issues. However, um, at that time, the hepatitis C treatment with interferon was like kind of having the flu for 48 weeks. Um, it was really something that people didn't wow. enjoy going through, and it wasn't very right. effective. It was about 50% of people um, actually cleared the virus through that treatment. However, uh, in about, I think it was 2017 in Canada, um, these new treatments were launched, and, and they've been launched around the world now. They're called directly acting antivirals. So these are um, antiviral medications. They're oral, so that means it's just a tablet that you swallow. There's no injections anymore. Um, and the amazing thing about these medications is actually they're, they're so targeted to the virus that they have very few side effects. So when people were taking this medication, they're actually not often feeling that unwell. And the other amazing thing is that because they're so potent, so they're very strong antivirals, the treatment is quite short now. So for most people with a hepatitis C infection, treatment is between 8 and 12 weeks, and it's just one to three tablets per day for that eight to 12 weeks. Um, and at that time, more than 95% of people who complete the treatment will be cured of the virus. It's actually that, one of the few chronic viral infections that is curable. That is tremendous progress and that's amazing. Now, I wanna mention the website, worldhepatitisday.org. I Can't Wait is the new campaign theme to launch World Hepatitis Day this year. Uh, and, and that highlights the need to accelerate that fight against viral hepatitis and the importance of testing and treatment for 
the people who need it. It's a very informative website. I, I suggest listeners, you go to the website, worldhepatitisday.org to learn. Um, I, I learned so much in my brief time that I spent there. Um, one was that hepatitis is the leading cause of liver cancer and getting tested is the best way to protect yourself. You know, I find it um, counterintuitive that people are afraid to go to a doctor for fear of a cancer diagnosis, yet getting a hepatitis diagnosis and getting treatment can actually prevent cancer. Absolutely true. So one of the most amazing things I think about um, hepatitis C treatment is that it effectively prevents cancer. Um, we, we now know that there's quite a few cancers that um, are actually quite prevalent that are essentially caused by viruses. So the virus um, that infects us is essentially causing damage to the DNA in our cells and then that cellular damage is accumulating and that results in cancer. Um, and that's correct. So hepatitis C infection and hepatitis B infection are, are leading causes of liver cancer around the world, especially in Canada. Um, and in fact, we can even see a reduced odds in developing cancer, even when someone is having hepatitis C treatment when they've already had damage to their liver. So for people who have even had that infection for 20 years or 30 years, where we've seen some of that cirrhosis develop in the liver. So that's where you have got scar tissue that's formed and your liver's starting to not function as well as it should. Even when people are having hepatitis C treatment at that time, we still see a very significant reduction in the risk of them developing liver cancer. And that's because our livers can heal. They're um, one of the few parts of our body that can regenerate and regrow. So once the virus is eradicated, and the infection's gone, our liver starts to actually heal straight away. Um, and so even for someone who might um, have known that they had hepatitis C for an infection for a long time, it's really never too late to connect with healthcare and ask about hepatitis C treatment. Um, it's always going to be something that's, that's beneficial. Um, and of course, yeah, a, a hepatitis C diagnosis is going to be uh, much easier to deal with than a cancer diagnosis at that point. 100%. I couldn't agree with you more. So the message here is don't wait, get tested because you can't wait. And that again is the new campaign theme that is launching World Hepatitis Day 2022. Uh, go to org to learn more information. And uh, Dr. Bartlett, there are ways that uh, people can join the campaign. How could people, what, what's one great way for people to get involved? Yes, yeah, so on the World Hepatitis Day org, um, worldhepatitisday.org website, website, there's uh, quite a few of these, what they're calling one-minute actions. So people can create their own pledge to end hepatitis. Um, if you're not someone who is affected by hepatitis, one of the things that you can do is pledge um, to not stigmatise people. So uh, we call it person-first language. So when we're talking about uh, people who are affected by hepatitis, saying the people first rather than um, hepatitis sufferers, for example, by putting the person at the front of the, the disease, we're making sure that we remember people's humanity. And that's one of the ways that we can combat stigma and discrimination that's often experienced uh, by people who are, who are living with these viruses or who are affected by them. Um, and you know, if, if it's something that might be potentially something that, uh, that you think that you could have um, become exposed to. So, you know, if you had a tattoo a long time ago, 
that's a risk for hepatitis C. Uh, if you had any medical procedures in um, countries outside of Canada, for example, in um, countries that have high prevalence of hepatitis C, so uh, China, Vietnam, uh, Pakistan, India, if you had dental surgery in any of those countries, you could have been exposed to hepatitis C. Uh, and knowing what your hepatitis C status is is really, really important. So, you know, if that's something that you think might be um, a possibility for you, then talk to your family doctor or uh, look up on the um, Action Hepatitis Canada website. There's a network of organisations across Canada that support people living with hepatitis C and they can give you information about how you can get tested and link with care wherever you live. That's excellent information and so important, especially with the person dying every 30 seconds from a hepatitis-related illness. As I said from the website, <laughs> I can't wait. The new campaign theme to launch World Hepatitis Day 2022. Dr. Bartlett, thank you so much for joining me and for all of the great information and good luck on July 28th. World Hepatitis Day. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Welcome back to the show. Just quickly, we don't have too much time right now, but I want to talk about some research that has been done recently in Canada. We found that people with no dementia, dementia risk factors like smoking, diabetes, or even hearing loss have similar brain health as individuals 10 to 20 years younger. This is incredible news because these are some of the things that you can modify to actually improve your health. So you can manage your diabetes, address your hearing loss, go to the, go get your hearing assessed and perhaps get hearing aids if you need them. And then also try and get the support that you need to quit smoking. There are a number of modifiable risk factors for dementia, such as low education, less than a high school diploma is a contributing factor to uh, an increased risk of uh, dementia, traumatic brain injury, alcohol or substance use and abuse, hypertension, smoking, smoking in the past four years and currently as well, and also diabetes and depression. So there are things that you can do to change those to improve your quality of life and improve your brain health. And this is exciting news, especially for baby boomers. It is never too late to make those changes. The scientists in this research found that having three risk factors, for example, could decrease cognitive performance by as much as nine years of aging. And the effects of the risk factors increased with age, as did the number of risk factors that people had. So a lot of people will have hypertension, diabetes type two, for example, and they may smoke. And so those people are actually going to have brain cognition function that is a decade beneath where they should be. Um, and they are at much greater risk. And those are three things that people can turn around. They can turn that around through diet, exercise. I've talked many, many times about my all in diet um, that I'm happy to email to you. If you like, just email me, nursetalkathotmail.com, and I'll send that off to you, getting out there, getting exercise, quitting smoking, cutting down on your substance abuse. Uh, older adults, 66 to 89, had more risk factors than middle-aged uh, adults between the ages of 45 and 65, and, and younger adults had the least, of course, 18 to 44. And in fact, most young and middle-aged adults had no risk factors, 58% and 46% 
respectively, whereas most older adults had one risk factor. If you have any of these risk factors, may I suggest you work with your doctor to turn this issue around. Start addressing any risk factors you have now, whether you are 18 or 80, and you will support your brain health to help yourself age like a rock star. As you know, I see a lot of patients who are in sexless marriages. I did a TEDx talk on the subject about five years ago. It's had close to 32 million views, even they even after they told me that nobody would watch the talk. <laughs> they said it was too long, and um, I needed to cut it in half. Um, and uh, ha, ye who misjudged the attention span of people when we're talking about sexlessness... Um, but that's true. They did ask me to cut it in half. And, um, and so I, I put it on a, these are my technological skills at work here. I put it on a, a drive that I shared with a physician that I was working on a project with. And, uh, and so he texted me, he said, I, I watched your TEDx talk. <laughs> said, how did you do that? Anyway, he said, you put it on our shared drive. I, I wanted to put the original on because I was thinking about whether I should cut it in half, as they said. It was like, it was actually like 24 minutes. And so they wanted me to bring it down to 12. It ended up being 22 minutes. But, um, and so I said, well, you know, the TEDx people want me to cut it in half. And he said, um, you want to please the TEDx people? Cut it in half. You want to please the world? Leave it exactly the way it is. And so I took the doctor's good advice and I kept it pretty much exactly the way it was. I guess I cut out a few extra things that I might've said twice um, and brought it down to 22 minutes. And, and nonetheless, it, it has had close to 32 million views. It's a subject that a lot of people don't talk about. I remember when I was invited to give that TEDx talk, I actually declined <laughs> at first because they sent me an application form and they invited me to speak. And then they sent me this application form and I thought, forget it. I'm, I'll, I will give 150% here and I will not be chosen. So I told them that. <laughs> I said, I can't do it. I just don't have any time to fill out this application form. And they said, okay, forget filling out the form. Just just do it. I'm like, okay. Which was hence the talk that I gave. Just do it. Um, anyway, so, which was the advice basically of the TEDx talk. But uh, so I remember when I was speaking to this room, it, my memory serves me correctly. It was a room full of men. Anyway, and so I said, you know, they said, what are you going to talk about? And then I said, well, I thought I would talk about what I've been seeing in my clinical practice for the past at that time, maybe seven or eight years. And uh, I said the sexless marriage and they were all a little bit dumbfounded. I said, you know, I'm pretty much going to be letting the cat out of the bag here. People think that, oh, once you get married, you know, you just have sex all the time. You're able to have sex. But ha, lo and behold, that is not the case as we have learned and, and perhaps you have learned as well ye who is married out there, perhaps um, your partner has low sexual desire, whether it be male or female. Women tend to have cornered the market on this because they have about 38.7% of women experience low sexual desire. And the biggest thing is that 12, only 12% 12 are bothered by it. About 20% of men experience low sexual desire, but it's almost worse when a female is in a relationship with a male and her male partner doesn't want or desire her sexually because uh, the conventional wisdom is that all men want is sex. Well, 
if all men want sex, a woman might think, why doesn't my man want me? What is wrong with me? And they internalize it and feel like they are not good enough or they're not pretty enough. They're not thin enough. Um, but actually the problem lies with the person and often can lie with the sexual response cycle. It can be related to the sexual response cycle, or it can be like many couples that I see in my clinical practice of late. And that is, um, it, it start, well, it appears to be chronic busyness and, and fatigue and fatigue is the number one reason for low sexual desire. But if you look beneath the chronic busyness, everything perfect, the house is perfectly clean, people working inside and outside of the home, everything looks great. Um, the incomes are, are high. The kids are in a million different activities. They're going from dusk until dawn. And then, you know, at the end of the day, people flop into bed and they have no time for each other. But, but what I've seen lately in my clinical practice is a rash of adult children of alcoholics who are in sexless marriages. And the, there is a great book, speaking of books, called um, the, it's called Adult Children of Alcoholics by uh, the author is it's Janice Warwitz. And it defines the 13 characteristics of adult children of alcoholics, one of which is, well, one or two, which is anxiety and depression and um, super responsibility or no responsibility it can go one way or the other difficulty with intimate relationships as well. And oftentimes this is what lies beneath the sexless marriages. This is what lies beneath the sheets and people will take a look at the book and realize, or when I, when I talk to them about the 13 characteristics of adult children of alcoholics, like guessing at what normal behavior is, um, having difficulty with intimate relationships, as I said, um, overachievers, um, perfectionism, you know, they will recognize that in themselves. And then when they read this book, which is not a very big book, but a very important book um, to read if you are in a relationship with somebody who was raised by an alcoholic or in another type of a dysfunctional family. And so you actually have to address that. And, and also so many of these people tell me that they've been to a sex therapist or they've been to a marriage counselor and the advice that they have been given is, you know, go to a cabin on a lake and, you know, surely you'll have sex then. Um, or you just might sleep the entire weekend because you're exhausted. And as I mentioned, fatigue is the number one reason for low sexual desire. And also lack of education is another reason around the sexual response cycle. Um, but, you know, there can be substance use is another reason for low sexual desire as well. There can be many reasons or anger, control issues, financial issues. There are so many different issues. Anyway, you can always Google TEDx Maureen McGrath. And uh, if you want to go and, but the best part of the TEDx talk was the 20,000 comments <laughs> that are absolutely hilarious. Um, if you don't really feel like listening to the TEDx talk. <laughs> read the comments. I suggest you do that because that's the best. Anyway, getting back to the sexual response cycle, it refers to the sequence of physical and emotional changes that occur 
as you become sexually aroused and engage in sexually stimulating activities such as masturbation or intercourse, for example. And it's important to know and understand how your body responds during each phase of the cycle because that can help to enhance your relationship and help you to pinpoint the cause of any problems that may be related to the sexual response cycle. So the basic linear model has four phases, excitement, plateau, orgasm, and resolution. Um, Often it is thought that desire comes first, but desire doesn't necessarily come first. Arousal, in fact, may come first and desire may come second. After a time with the same person, that applies because sexual desire wanes after being in a relationship with somebody after around two to four years, the same hormones are not excreted in the same amount. And of course, it becomes commonplace. It's like having vanilla ice cream every night. Both men and women experience these four phases of the sexual response cycle, although the timing is typically different. And it's very unlikely that both partners will reach orgasm at the same time ever. And the intensity of the response and the time spent in each phase is also a variable. And it varies from person to person. It may not be the exact same with you and your partner or you. And perhaps if you're in a threesome, it's not going to be the same for the three of you. And to understand these differences helps partners better understand others' bodies and responses. And that too can enhance your sexual experience. So excitement basically involves the, that muscle, that, that time when the muscle tension increases, your heart rate quickens, your breathing is accelerated, you may become flushed, the nipples become hardened or erect. This can last for a few minutes to to several hours. You get blood flow to the genitals. Um, Well, it increases because blood flow, blood flows to the genitals, newsflash, but that blood flow increases. And that results in the swelling of a woman's clitoris and labia and the erection of a man's penis vaginal lubrication begins. Some women have issues with vaginal lubrication. So there's treatment for that. And so if you experience that, that's something to understand that this is an issue in the phase one or the excitement phase of the female sexual response cycle. A woman's breast will become fuller and the vaginal walls will begin to swell. And for a man, the testicles swell, the scrotum tightens, and they begin secreting a lubricating liquid. Phase two, or the plateau, um, uh, intensifies those changes that began in phase one. Um, The vagina continues to swell from the blood flow. The clitoris becomes highly sensitive. It might even be painful to touch, and it will retract under the clitoral hood to avoid direct stimulation from the penis. And the man's testicles tighten. Of course, the breathing, the heart rate, and the blood pressure continue to increase, and somebody some people may experience muscle spasms that begin in the feet in the, or in the hands. And of course, we get that muscle tension. And then phase three is orgasm. And the orgasm is the climax of the sexual response cycle. It's the shortest of the phases and generally lasts only a few seconds, but it can last a little bit longer. Um, you may experience involuntary muscle contractions. Your blood pressure, heart rate, and breathing are at their highest rates. And you have a rapid intake of oxygen at this point. You might experience muscle um, muscle spasms in your feet, and you get that sudden forceful release of sexual tension. And for women, the muscles of the vagina contract, and the uterus also undergoes 
rhythmic contractions. And men may experience rhythmic contractions of the muscles at the base of the penis, and then hence ejaculation occurs. And some people experience a sexual flush over the entire body after sex during the resolution phase. The body slowly returns to its normal level of function. It's re- you're relaxed. It may help you to sleep. There's a general sense of well-being, and the intimacy is typically enhanced. Some women are capable of a rapid return to the orgasm phase. In other words, some women are multi-orgasmic, um, especially with further sexual stimulation, but men need recovery time after orgasm, and that's called the refractory period, where they cannot reach orgasm again. And that time period varies amongst men, and that typically length lengthens as men advance in age. So there can be problems in your relationship, or there can be problems with the sexual response cycle, and it's important to understand this cycle. Now, one last thing, this particular linear model doesn't resonate with everybody, especially women. Dr. Rosemary Basson developed the responsive desire response cycle, and, and that is where you... Um, respond to your partner's advances when everything is good and healthy in the relationship and you don't feel like having sex because you are tired but you do accept your partner's advances and you enjoy it and you are motivated to have sex we call that responsive desire just important to understand that since people get very little sex education including physicians in medical school so the more we can educate people at different ages of life and and even children. It's important to educate children about sexual health and depending on their developmental age, age age-appropriate sexual health education. About 400,000 Canadians suffer from constipation. This is so common. I always say in my clinical practice on the North Shore of Vancouver that um, 70% of people on the North Shore have constipation and the rest have diarrhea. Anyway, constipation is a condition in which you may have fewer than three bowel movements a week. You may have stools that are hard, dry, or lumpy, or stools that are difficult or painful to pass, or feeling that not all the stool has passed. You may get some abdominal bloating. And, um, you know, it's very important to address this because it can make you feel sluggish and and it's quite frankly unhealthy healthy. So you got to move things along. And the best way is to start regular exercise. That's really important. Also ensure that you drink plenty of water and eat a healthy fiber rich diet. And those are the recommendations that I want to make to you tonight. So a couple of foods that you might want to add to your repertoire of menus out there in your Canadian households to increase the fiber are one of them is raspberries, especially in this summer. Um, they also give you a hit of calcium and vitamin C. So that's good too. You just don't want to make raspberry pie, raspberry tart, because then you're going to be adding the sugar and the fat. And you know how I feel about those two things. Anyway, pears are another one. It's a very sweet fruit. It's packed with vitamins. You never think of pears. I always think of an apple, but I forget. And then I have a pear and it's amazing. Has antioxidants, has a lot of fiber and water that can help with constipation, and it is low calorie, about 60 calories. Another low cal food, as long as you don't add the butter, is popcorn. It is a 
fabulous Apple TV food or <laughs> for you to sit and enjoy. Um, and it's a healthy snack as long as it's on its own. And you know what? You can get used to eating it on its own. It's packed with fiber. Something else that I always think is high glycemic index, but it's not apparently, I'm not sure I trust that, is watermelon because I do love it, especially in the summer when it's perfectly ripe. It doesn't have a lot of fiber, but it's 92% water. And that can also encourage a bowel movement. It has tons of nutrients, antioxidants that can help to protect your cells. It has vitamins A, B, and C, and lycopene, which can help shield you from UV rays, which we have quite often in the summer. Oatmeal is also just a great choice for breakfast because you'll be less hungry. It'll sustain you for a better part of the day. It's a good source of fiber. Also, the oats absorb lots of water and that can help with digestion. And as you probably know, it can help with lower your bad cholesterol or your LDL. It gives you complex carbs, protein, calcium, and iron. So it's very healthy. Almonds are another great source of uh, fiber and you can put add them to salads or desserts. You can have them with plain yogurt and then add some fruit in there for a nice healthy snack. Um, and you can grind them if you're going to make a nice tasty pie filling or pastry dough just on special occasions. And um, there's also kale and spinach and collard greens and turnip greens. These are the turnip greens in particular are a staple of Southern cooking, but um, a lot of people serve them with ham, hocks, or um, you can use smoked turkey wings to lower the salt and fat um, in your diet for a tasty meal. Potatoes also have a lot of fiber and have resistant starch, and this resists digestion, and some of it ends up in your large intestine where it helps good bacteria grow, and that helps with constipation as well. Anyway, um, let's to end on the less than sexiest uh, subject. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.